Badass of the Week is an iHeartRadio podcast produced by High Five Content. The Nubian queen sits on a throne with the head of a statue of Augustus at her feet, a pit of lions below her, prowling for more captives to be thrown to their deaths. With a wave of her hand and a mighty battle cry, armies of spearmen, archers, and war elephants march forward at her command, headed north to defend her realm against the armies of Rome and Egypt. She is the Kandake Amanarenas, the warrior queen of Nubia, and she demands they fight or die. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Badass of the Week. My name is Ben Thompson, and I am here, as always, with my co-host, Dr. Pat Larish. Pat, how's it going today? Things are going great. How are you, Ben? I'm doing okay. I'm really excited to talk about the two characters we're going to talk about today. We are kind of, I guess, in some ways, continuing a tour of, like, badass women revolutionaries operating on the fringe of the Roman Empire. We had um, we had Boudica and her uh, revolt against uh, Nero and the successors of Nero. Um, and now we're going to be talking about two other women from opposite corners of the empire. And uh, I think to start, you're going to be talking about somebody who we um, when I first pitched the idea of this show and was trying to get you to come on and and uh, do this with me. This was the first name that came into your head of somebody you wanted to talk about. Yeah, Amana Reynas, the Kandake or queen of the Meroites from Nubia, which is what we would call modern day Sudan. Yeah, I didn't really know much about her at all until a few years ago, I read a novella, which is a term Latin teachers use for a little easy reader written in Latin by Emma Vanderpool about Amanarenas. And I just got really interested in the figure of Amanarenas. I honestly hadn't known much about ancient Meroe. And I don't think anybody does really, right? Yeah. 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 It's not, we don't know zero, but we know much less than we do about, say, uh, its neighbor to the north, ancient Egypt, because we haven't really deciphered the Meroitic language. So there are a lot of inscriptions, but we only know about 100 words or so, and a lot of those are names. And so we're you know, we're still figuring this out. And honestly, if any of you badass listeners out there want to try your hand at deciphering ancient Meroitic, please do. Uh, I think that would be a great help to all of us. That's so interesting that like, you know, in 2023, we still have human languages and written languages that are undeciphered and unknown. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, um, a kid learning English has the cat in the hat or knuffle bunny or whatever, or the very hungry caterpillar. And we don't really have that for a lot of these ancient languages. So Latinists are trying to fill the gap and write about, honestly, whatever they feel like writing about in easy Latin with restricted vocabulary, maybe simple syntax, depending on what level of reader you're trying to reach. And it's also an opportunity to tell stories. And some of these are fictional stories. Like let's tell fictional stories about the daily life of people in Rome or people in ancient Gaul. And some of these are um, about historical figures whom the author wants to share with the world. And I'm grateful that Emma Vanderpool decided to write a novella about Amon Arenas because that's kind of how I learned about her. And that's what got me interested in her. And I think that's what will get some of my students interested in her too. Wow. Okay. Well, now you can tell the story to, uh, to all the listeners here. And, uh, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, thank you. And you can explain yeah. it in, in small, simple English words so that I can understand it. <laughs> Amon Arenas, badass. <laughs> okay, I got it. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean that's the that's the executive summary, and the TLDR. <laughs> TLDR, yeah. And so we've got Amon Arenas, and you're going to tell us about 
uh, Zenobia. So I'm going to follow up from. So we we hit we hit Europe with Bodica, and then we're going to go to an African badass revolutionary queen in Amanarenus, and then after that, I'll talk about um, Zenobia, who is in the Middle East, which was Roman Asia. So we are going to get started with all of this. Um, but first, we're going to go to a quick word from our sponsors, and when we come back, Pat will uh, will give us the easy reader version of Amanarenus for. Badasses. Stick with us. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this there's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billings, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. So the year is 31 BCE, and Egypt has just been through a lot. We've just had the Battle of Actium, in which two different sides of the Roman Empire were fighting against one another. Egypt was involved with one of the sides. And the result of the Battle of Actium is that Octavian, whom we later know as Augustus, became victorious. And Egypt is a province of Rome, and Egypt is really producing a lot of grain and is the breadbasket of Rome. So Rome wants to keep an eye on Egypt and also keep an eye on Egypt's neighbors, including 
the kingdom of Meroe or Kush to the south. There are a lot of different names that I'll use. Then imagine you're Rome wanting to keep an eye on Egypt. And then you're also the Meroites wanting to keep an eye on Egypt. So we've got lots of people keeping an eye on the borders or the contested territory, or maybe not the contested territory, but the sensitive territory. The leader of the Meroites is Amonoranus. She is the Kandake, which is a title which you basically can think of as queen. And I've seen Kandake written as Candace sometimes. Is that that's the is that the same thing? Yes, yeah, spelled with a C, and it looks like it should be pronounced with the soft C, Candace. You know, it's become a woman's name. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you go back to our sources, it's spelled with uh, a kappa, so we know that it was pronounced with a hard a hard ka sound, Kandake. So I'll use the ancient pronunciation. And no, for sure. I was just curious if it yeah. was the same thing because yeah. I've seen talk. I've I've seen some things on the the Candaces of of Sudan and um, just kind of wanted to make sure that was the same the same word. It is the same. Yeah, yeah. The Candaces, the Queens. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's kind of similar to the way we refer to the Caesars of Rome, and actually, they're the they would have been pronounced Caesars of Rome. Huh. I didn't know that either. Actually, that's a new. I'm learning so much Latin with you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But but yeah, so you were talking about the Battle of Actium. That's kind of like mm -hmm. the pivotal moment for Augustus becoming the emperor, right? Like he's he's on one side and it's right after the assassination of Julius Caesar and uh, Octavian and Mark Antony are fighting their war to kind of kind of take over. And Antony has allied himself with Cleopatra in Egypt, right? And mm-hmm. they yeah. are um they're going to they're they're having the war against Octavian and Agrippa and at Actium uh Agrippa traps Mark Antony and he's got to try to break out and he's defeated and he loses. Mm-hmm. And then Egypt is kind of quelled, Antony and Cleopatra kill themselves. Everything's kind of coming up Augustus where this is kind of the beginning of the Roman Empire as we know it, like very, very early on. Yeah, Rome is no longer a republic. Uh, it's an empire in the sense of uh, a geographically remote controlled territory and also an emperor, one guy in charge. And that makes the Kandakes a little nervous. They're not part of the empire at this point, right? No, they're not. They are adjacent to the empire. <laughs> They suddenly share a border with an expansionist empire that uh, that yes. has consolidated yeah. and is no longer having a civil war, and that makes them a little nervous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because okay, so Rome's civil war, Rome's internal stuff has kind of simmered down, but what's going to happen at the borders? Is Rome going to beef up defense around the borders? Is Rome going to consider expanding? Is Rome going to want to find a way to have dibs on resources and trade goods? And, you know, what is it like being a province of the Roman Empire? Well, Rome is generally fairly open to cultural diversity as long as you pay your taxes. But where do you, how do you get to the point where you find yourself paying taxes to Rome. So the Meroites uh, to the south of Egypt are quite reasonably wondering what's going on. Well, there are battles and there's a battle with Rome that takes five years from about 27 to 22. And the former ruler of the Meroites, I'm not going to call him a Kandake because he was a man, Teratequas, who was a relative of Amonorenas, possibly her husband. When I said that we don't completely understand the Meroitic language, this is a sign of that, that we're not sure what some of these family relationships are. But anyway, Trying to piece it together with a hundred words is probably pretty difficult. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Teratekos has was in charge. He was the ruler. He dies in one of these early battles. And that leaves Amonorenas in charge. And the term Kandake can mean something like queen regent. She has, we think, a son. 
she steps into the role quite readily. There have been plenty of Kandakes before her, and there will be plenty of Kandakes after her. So she has kind of a tradition of being a female ruler of the Meroites, a female ruler of the Kushites, and she leads them to victory. There is an initial victory for the Kushites in Roman Egypt. So she's kind of, so they were on the border and, and Rome's kind of testing the border and maybe there's some raids across to like, just kind of probe each other's defenses. At some yeah, point along the yeah. way, the king of the Kushites is killed and, uh, mm -hmm. or presumably Teratikwas is the, is the king, he's killed. And that puts the Kandake Amatoranus in charge. And mm -hmm. she's kind of ready for war now. She is. She is. Yeah. And Kush is, uh, the kingdom of Kush has been around for a long, long time. And so we have talked about, you know, Cleopatra and the Egyptians and everybody kind of knows that the Egyptians have a, a long and storied history, thousands of years of, uh, of empire and the pharaohs and all of that stuff. The, you know, the, the heyday of the pharaohs is, is long gone, right? The pyramids were built something like 2000 years before this battle. But Kush also has a very long history of they built pyramids. There are pyramids in the Sudan that were built by the mm -hmm. kingdom of Kush. And um, it's something you don't always think about when you're thinking about the Sudan of, of having there be pyramids, which they are mm -hmm. really cool looking. They're they're a little bit more isosceles than the Great Pyramid of Giza. They're very interesting looking, yeah. very cool, um, and definitely worth uh, worth a search if you're going to uh, try to do a little bit more research on this stuff, because it's really interesting. Yes. Yeah. Ancient Egypt is, I think, more famous and much better known uh, among people today. But if you start looking into Nubia, it's this whole culture with its own art, its own architecture, its own history, its own conquests. And you can tell that there is cultural contact between Kush and Egypt. Uh, but it's still its own style. Yes. Yeah, very distinct. Yeah, the pyramids are. Yes. Yeah. So zooming back to Amanorenas in particular, We've got this kind of military back and forth between uh, the Kushites and the Romans, and Amanorenas and her forces take several Roman forts, and in addition to taking several Roman forts, they also take the head of a bronze statue of Augustus. Where do you put a tchotchke like that? Well, if you're Amanorenas, you bury it under the steps leading up to your temple of victory. <laughs> womp, womp. So anytime anyone walks up these steps into the Temple of Victory, which is to say the victory of the Kushites, you are walking over the head. You are trotting on the head of Augustus. And one thing that's worth keeping in mind, I think, is that Augustus is still alive Mm -hmm. when this happens, right? Like, this is not an ancient statue. This is a statue that was built within the last, I don't know, 10 years, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't imagine that Augustus really liked that, though. I don't imagine that went over well with the emperor of Rome. I don't think so. No. So it was a nice, it was a nice coup for Amanorenas. So... While this war, while this extended battle is going on, at a certain point, Aelius Gallus, the Roman leader, is actually called away to do other things. And guess what? That's an opportunity. So Amanorenas and Akinadad, her son, as we're pretty sure he's her son, launched an attack on lower Nubia, which is to say the part of Nubia that's quite close to Egypt. This includes Syene and Philae. If you want modern associations, Syene is the site of the Aswan Dam, and Philae is where the Rosetta Stone was found. And it's kind of interesting when you talk about Egypt, because the Nile flows south to north. So lower Egypt is in the north, and upper Egypt is in the south. So it's reversed from what you'd think about when you look at it on a map. Yes. And so while we think of north as upper, it's, it's lower in, when you're talking about Egypt. The Nile was so important for transportation and the water from the Nile irrigated the crops that allowed Egypt to become, well, allowed Egypt to feed its own people and also to provide grain to other parts of the Roman Empire. So it makes sense that Amanorenas is looking at this area. 
And so she and Akinadad are attacking this area. Another Roman prefect comes in. His name is Gaius Petronius. He drives back the Kushites. And okay, okay, the Kushites do withdraw. Um, the Romans leave a garrison in the area. They, call, they called it Primus. These days we call it Kasser Ibram. And the Kushites try to retake Kasser Ibram. They do not succeed. But that's just a momentary setback. Amanarenas was really motivated to stop the Romans. She does not want them on her doorstep. She doesn't want Kush to turn into another Egypt. And she just, you know, personal preference, didn't want to be defeated in war. Being defeated in war in the ancient world was really unpleasant. And <laughs> it was unpleasant for rank and file soldiers. It was also unpleasant for the the general or the ruler or the queen or whoever the figurehead was also. Right. You ended up either being beheaded or paraded down the streets of Rome in a triumph or enslaved or all manner of terrible mm -hmm. things happened to people who were defeated in battle. And you really don't want that to have to happen to you. <laughs> no, you really, really don't. Yeah. That may explain some of Amanorinus' motivation. She did not pull her punches. And I said earlier that we still have a lot of the Meroitic language that we don't fully understand, but we do have images on some of these Meroitic engravings. We do have a carving depicting Amanorinus feeding her enemies to lions. <laughs> so here, kitty, kitty, here, kitty, kitty. And we also think that Amanorinus may have done something that Kandakes in general were known to have done, which is to have war elephants. So she had a whole menagerie of, of war animals, and a, a zoo of, of lions to feed your enemies to and war elephants mm -hmm. to ride into battle. And, um, mm -hmm. and that's pretty awesome. So yeah, so imagine the elephants trumpeting, imagine the lions roaring. And so that's a really interesting thing. And, and one thing I think we should talk about is how Amanorinus is very different from Cleopatra. We all know mm -hmm. the Cleopatra story for the most part of she was the pharaoh of Egypt. And she really tried to get involved in the politics of Rome, right? Because Rome was mm -hmm. on her doorstep. They were really making moves to take her territory. Egypt was rich. It produces a lot of food, which the empire was growing and they needed food. Mm -hmm. And she was feeling a lot of pressure by the Romans kind of just getting all into her business. And Cleopatra is interesting because she decides she's going to play the different sides against each other. She gets involved with Julius Caesar. She, you know, she's trying to get involved in the politics there. That doesn't work out because he gets killed. So she gets involved with Mark Antony, ends up that's also the wrong side. And then she ends up having to kill herself by being she has a poisonous snake biter. Um, but, you know, she she played the Game of Thrones and it didn't work out for her. Right. It, it it didn't work out for her in the end, but she played a pretty good game up to the end. That's a really good point that doesn't get mentioned that much, is that like she is much more savvy than historians sometimes like to give her credit for, because she managed to play that for decades, right? Um, but she saw Rome coming as a problem for her and managed to play it that way. The Kandake is also seeing an even more powerful Rome on her border, and she decides she's going to play it very differently. She just wants to be left alone, is my understanding of this. She's not going to try to play, you know, the new triumvirate against each other, any of that stuff. She's just, I'm going to raid your, your towns. I'm going to steal the bronze head. I'm going to fight. I'm going to throw my prisoners to lions. I'm going to ride out on my war mm -hmm. elephants. Anytime I think you're about to come mess with me, um, just leave me alone. Which, uh, how does that work out for her? Does she end up getting paraded down the streets of Rome in a triumph in chains or? Uh... No, she does not. She does not. The Romans might have liked that or they might have liked some sort of like client state or vassal state setup. And that's surprising because Kush has gold mines. That's like a thing that that region is known for is they're, they're on the northern edge of the Sahara Desert. And so there is, you know, sand and wind and mountains. But uh, 
there's gold there. And so for them to leave mm-hmm. Amanorenus alone is impressive because they're just going to be like, we don't need those gold mines. We're, it's not worth the effort of trying to conquer you. Yeah. They have a treaty. Amanorenus and her ambassadors and the Roman ambassadors establish a treaty. And as is often the case with a treaty with Rome that leaves Rome and a former enemy or problematic neighbor, the peaceful outcome usually involves the other kingdom paying some sort of tax or tribute to Rome. In this treaty, they do not pay taxes. The kingdom of Cush, Amanorenus and her people are really and truly just left alone. Wow, that's... Knowing what we know about the Roman Empire and how much, how literally what you said is that the vast majority of documents we have involve people paying taxes to the emperor. And and you run into this sometimes like, oh, we lost the war, but like, yeah, just give us a little money and, and we can we can propaganda that into a victory for us. Oh, they paid us some money, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but for them to not have to pay taxes or tribute or even even say like uh oh, yeah you're fine you're the you're the the overarching empire but we'll just do our own thing mm-hmm. that is yeah really... like have a local magistrate but the rome rome is really in charge yeah i'm not a king i'm a details. prefect yeah. in, in your name but whatever like none of that it's pretty amazing it's really kind of a testament to cuz it's not like rome didn't have an army on the border so oh no uh, they did yeah and yeah. so that's really kind of unprecedented yeah yeah, Amanorenos and her kingdom continue to just do their thing for centuries. What ha- do we know? What happens to Amanorenos? Um, no, we don't really know what happened to Amanorenos. At least at this point, we don't. Maybe we might uncover more sources. So she presumably passed the reign on to her son and. Uh, her successors, um, some of her successors were women, some of them were men. If you look over the records that we have, I don't have any knowledge of, did she retire? Did she die? She she did her own thing. Yeah. So yeah. like she, she just, did her own thing. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. and she, she wasn't, uh, well, wasn't subjugated by the Romans. I mean, that's, that's enough, yeah. right? <laughs> that's enough. Yeah. That puts yeah. her that puts her above and beyond most of the people who have attempted to tell Rome to go fuck itself, right? <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> so we don't have a definitive story for what happened to Amanorenas after successfully negotiating a treaty with the Romans to leave her people alone, but we do know what happened to the head of that bronze statue of Augustus. So Ben, where do you think that statue, where do you think the head of Augustus is now? I really want it to still be under the ancient ruins of the Temple of Victory in Kush, but I'm going to guess, I don't know, British Museum. Bingo! <laughs> of course. Of course. Of course. Of course. Well, I mean, that's like the no news is good news with the Kandake mm-hmm. after the war with Rome. She survived and Kush stayed independent for a decent period of time after this um, and did not get incorporated into the empire, uh, I think, for quite a while after the mm-hmm. um, after this war. And uh, that's pretty amazing. Uh, so we are going to go to a quick break. And then when we come back, I'm going to tell the story of another uh, pretty amazing woman who resisted Rome and, and got away with mm-hmm. it. And We'll see if she had as happy of an ending as the Kandake did, but uh, damn it, she's also going to be <laughs> resisting Rome and, mm-hmm. and fighting battles yep. and and even getting involved with some lions and elephants and stuff. So we'll talk about that right after this. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday 
and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O. TIKA.com. Julia Aurelia Zenobia was born sometime around 240 CE in the advanced Syrian paradise city of Palmyra, which is about 120 miles northeast of Damascus. She was tall and beautiful. She's described as having very dark eyes. Um, and she was from what we believe to be, and there's some debate about this, a, a very wealthy, powerful family, uh, some kind of mix of Semitic, Arab, Macedonian, Egyptian descent. She claimed direct descent from lots of people, but notably Cleopatra and Dido of Carthage, which is kind of interesting because I think Dido of Carthage might not have been a real person. Um, she was extremely well-educated. She spoke fluent Latin, Syrian, Greek, and Egyptian. She studied Homer and Plato in the original ancient Greek, and she actually kept a running book documenting Asian history for posterity through most of her life. She kept a running history journal, which is pretty cool. And alas, lost to us. Yes, sadly lost to us, but we do know she had it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I would have liked to read the history of Asia from her perspective. Wouldn't that be interesting? If that's something yeah. like that survived, it would be awesome. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, well, at some point, she marries uh, Septimius Odonathus. And uh, Pat, I've heard you refer to him as Odonat instead of Odonathus. Yeah, Odonathus is the Greek slash Latin version of his name. And his name in Syrian, which is itself a member of the Semitic language family, would have been something like Odinat. So you can call him Odinat, you can call him Odinathus, you can call him Mr. Zenobia. <laughs> Mr. Zenobia, I like it. Uh, and I don't imagine Julia Aurelia Zenobia was her birth name either. No, her name might have been something like Al-Zabai or something like that, something in Syrian. Um, but over the course of her life, she acquired a lot of different versions of her name and a lot of titles and names tacked on, as one does, especially if one is a member of a ruling family. And she went by Zenobia during her lifetime. Mm -hmm. Well, Odinathus, Odinat, he was a pretty badass dude. We've seen some depictions of him with this giant lumberjack beard, and he was like a general of the Palmyrian army. He was the king. He was a, a serious hunter. 
And he and Zenobia uh, just, they fall for each other pretty much right away. There's a description of her and him hunting together. And they say the ardor of Zenobia and that dangerous amusement was not inferior to his own. Um, they would go out into the wilderness with bows, spears. They're hunting bears, panthers, uh, lions, actually. And Oh, my. Yeah. <laughs> And um, she likes to hunt, from what we understand of her. And she doesn't ride in the carriages that you would expect of royalty at this time period. She likes to ride on a horse. And she wore, I think, there is a source I came across that described her as wearing a cape that um, she had fashioned from the pelt of a jaguar or some sort of big cat that she had killed herself, which that's like some... Conan the Barbarian stuff, which I love. Now, Odanat's family had been granted Roman citizenship by the Roman Emperor Septimius Severus in the 190s. Um, and this was part of what we had talked about with Amonarenus of the Roman Empire is trying to expand. And in some cases, what that means is, yeah, you're part of the Odinot and Palmyra and you guys, you're part of the Roman Empire, but you can do your own thing. And, you know, just as long as you just tell everybody you're part of the empire, that's fine. Um, because at this point in time, the Roman Empire is having a very difficult time maintaining even its own emperors. This We're in a, a part of yes. Roman history called the crisis of the third century. And Pat, that sounds bad. Yes, it's a crisis. It takes place in the third century. And Rome is too big, too unwieldy. The emperor Valerian is killed by the Persians. We end up with one emperor after the other after the other, the total of about 26 different emperors in a couple of decades. That's a very fast turnover. There Especially is, because it's a, it's, a, it's a position that you hold for life. <laughs> and the Roman Empire was split up into three competing empires. So you've got, in the middle, you've got the Roman Empire. To the western part of the Mediterranean, you've got the Gallic Empire. And then over to the east, you've got the Palmyrene Empire. And yeah. that brings us to our friend Zenobia. Yeah. And so, you know, it's worth mentioning this is the third century. So this is 300 years after the story that we were talking about with Augustus. The empire has has run. It's 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 not over yet. And this isn't the end of it. It will continue for mm -hmm. a while longer. But they had kind of a mess for this better part of a century. Um, but you mentioned the Palmyrian Empire. They stay nominally loyal to Rome during this crisis. But a weak Roman Empire means that the Palmyrian region or sector or uh, governorship or province or whatever is becoming more and more powerful. And Odinot sees, uh, you had mentioned the Emperor Valerian, he was actually, he was captured by the Persians in battle. He went after them, they captured him, which was mm -hmm. humongously embarrassing. I think this yes. might be the only time that has ever happened to a Roman emperor to be captured by the enemy in battle. Uh, I this is the only time I can think of this happening. There may be one or two Same, more, yeah, maybe yeah. later on, especially when they're fighting the barbarians and stuff, or the, mm -hmm. the you know the Vandals and Gauls and Goths and all that stuff. But um, mm -hmm. but this is hugely embarrassing, and the Persians just kill him, right? They just fucking kill him, mm -hmm. and uh, and that's kind of the beginning of this crisis. But Odinot shares a border with the Persians, and so him and Zenobia together, they ride into battle against the Persians, ostensibly to avenge the fallen emperor. We'll get his body back for you. We'll punish the Persians for what they did to Rome. And they mm -hmm. charge in there and they besiege the capital. They win this big battle at the Battle of Carhe, which is not the one that you guys probably think of with uh, with Crassus, but it's a different one. And they, yeah, this one is in, yeah. Yeah, they win a big battle and they they claim they got the body back of the emperor. We don't know. They came back with a yeah. skeleton. It's probably him. It's fine. Uh, and it yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It gets the job done. Sure. Right. It's fine. And they take some lands from the Turks. They they fight off. The, they fight the Goths even. And, mm -hmm. you know, they're doing this as a, quote, Roman ally, you know, air quotes. But, um, you know, they're great defenders of the empire. And even the various emperors, as they come and go, describe them as great defenders of the empire. But they're also 
conquering a lot of land and gaining a lot of treasure and a lot of loot and a lot of um, growing their military. And they're doing all of mm -hmm. this stuff over here that is making... Well, it's making Odinot and Zenobia much, much more powerful and mm -hmm. uh, really flexing their, we're in charge here. We're in charge in the Middle East. Rome is the other end of the Mediterranean. We're here. You got to worry about us. We're, we're in charge now. And so that's going pretty well. Odinot and Zenobia, they build this pretty decent sized chunk of land that would be considered an empire if they weren't technically vassals of a different empire. Things are going great, but one day something terrible happens. And there are several versions of this story and several accounts of what happened. I'm going to go with my favorite version of the story, mm -hmm. uh, just full disclosure. Yeah. It goes like this. Odinot and Zenobia, they're out hunting for something. They're in, they're out on campaign. They're in Persia. They're, I don't know, bow hunting for lions or something cool like that. And they're traveling with a big group of, you know, the royal party is out there doing their hunting thing. And uh, one of the people with them is Odinot's nephew, Maonius. And they're going out and they're, they see a lion and Maonius shoots his bow first. He shoots a bow before the king shoots an arrow. And that Oops. is not cool. You're not supposed to do that. That's against no. the rules. You gotta, no, you're not supposed to do that, Myonius. When you shoot an arrow, it scares all the prey. And so then the king doesn't get a good shot. The king gets the best shot and everybody else kind of picks up the scraps. This is how this works. And Myonius mm -hmm. knew this. He was being a brat. And Odinot is a Middle Eastern conqueror in the second century, third century AD. He does not put up with this. He tells Maonius, get out of here. Get off your horse. You're walking home. You're done. Hunt's over for you. Get out of here. He takes away his keys. Takes away his keys. You're grounded. Go home. Maonius is upset about this. He goes home uh, and he collects, he finds a couple of, or maybe he knew a couple of disgruntled aristocrats who were ready for who had been thought they had been disrespected by Odinot. They want revenge. So, okay, Odinot and Zenobia come back from their hunt. They've got whatever dead carcasses of animals that we're going to eat for a feast for dinner or whatever. They're mm -hmm. going to have this big, awesome Maybe dinner. Maybe make garments out of them. Sure, we'll make that out of the skins and we'll eat the meat and it's going to be an awesome feast. They get this big dinner ready and the doors shut and Maonius and these disgruntled noblemen, they kill Odinot and they kill his son. It's not Zenobia's son, it's her stepson from Odinot's first marriage. Uh, but they kill yeah. Odinot, they kill his son. And then Maonius is like, I should be the emperor now because I'm next in I'm the next male in line anyway. Ah. Yeah. So That's what he says. That's what he says. And we haven't talked too much about the character of Zenobia. We know that she knife hunts for jaguars, but we haven't talked too much about her character. Um, she doesn't like this. She's not happy, and Maonius is going to find out that he fucked up. He made a big mistake. So she doesn't just capture Maonius and have him beheaded. That would be letting him off too easy. So she has him captured. She has him bound up. She has him brought to the Temple of Baal, and she sacrifices him to the gods personally. And along with all of his co-conspirators, uh, they are offered up as human sacrifices to appease the spirit of her dead husband in the underworld. It's freaking wow. awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Usually when people talk about a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, usually it's like eh, a goat a cow or just like yeah i'll stay late and work an hour or two on a friday to like mm -hmm. <laughs> so you can yeah. go home early <laughs> not yeah. literally yeah. sacrifice you on the altar of Baal in front of mm -hmm. my people right to avenge my fallen husband there's a there's a separate version of this story where um Zenobia orchestrated the entire thing to remove Odinot and his son so that her son could inherit the throne, um, kind of like a red wedding -y deal of like, because mm -hmm. her stepson was older, so he would have inherited, but with him out of the way, her steps, her uh, biological son inherits. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I If that was true, I could make an argument as to why that was badass as well. But I prefer this version mm -hmm. of the story. Yeah. And be that as it may, it had the effect of removing 
Yes. These other claimants to the throne. It did. And also pinning it all on Maonius, who was dead and mm -hmm. <laughs> now he can't defend himself anymore. So that puts Zenobia in charge. And there's a weird transition of power here in that everybody in the kingdom of Palmyria is cool with this. Nobody revolts. Nobody protests. Nobody complains. There's not the, the Kandakes. There is a history of women rulers in Kush. There is a tradition mm -hmm. of this. There's a history of it. Uh, they have a term for it, right? A Kandake is specifically a woman ruler. Um, mm -hmm. Palmyra, they don't have this. It's not as common in you know in this area of the world at this time. And uh, there could have been friction. There could have been. There could have been friction, but there's no record of anybody complaining in, in mm -hmm. militarily, at least, right? No revolt. Yeah. No. Usually when there's a succession war of some kind, somebody takes over, somebody's mad about it, some aristocrat thinks they mm -hmm. can be at, oh, I'm the long lost descendant, whatever. Maybe Myonius had supporters waiting in the woodworks. Exactly. And, and so usually you have to put down a little bit of a revolution before you, you have to kill everybody else who thinks they're in charge, but everybody was either okay with Zenobia or they were afraid that they were going to get sacrificed on an altar if they tried to mess with her. So whatever mm -hmm. the case, there's no, there's no, um, no record of any kind of revolt against her taking charge, uh, which I think, as you said, with the Kandake, um, she is claiming herself as a regent for her son. Uh, his name mm -hmm. is Vabalathus, and he's too young to rule at the time. So she's going to rule in his stead, which is very common. Yeah. And so what is her reign like now that she is in charge? Okay. So this is when she starts going as a Septimia, Septimia Zenobia Augusta, and she rules over what is suddenly a kingdom that stretches from Persia all the way across the Middle East through present day Syria, you know, Judea, down into kind of Jordan, you Tigris mm -hmm. and Euphrates river valleys. Um, she is incredibly prolific at building. So the first thing she does is really build up the city of Palmyra. She builds temples, palaces, these giant colossuses, colossi, colossuses, colossi? Is that right? Colossi. Many a colossus. <laughs> many a colossus. She constructs many a colossus. And colossus here meaning a larger than life statue of a human figure. Yeah. If you want a technical term? Yeah. He, huge statues of people and animals because she loves hunting and she loves animals. So it's a lot of statues of, of you said that uh, the Kandake had statues of her feeding feeding her uh, enemies to, to lions. Um, mm -hmm. Zenobia has a couple of those as well. It's her with lions. It's her hunting. It's her defeating her enemies. Um, there's pictures of all of these things uh, online. They're, the ruins of Palmyra are there, and you can can go visit them, and you can see them. And uh, the the stuff that was being built here at this time, I mean, I picture in my head the kind of what I would picture when I think of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. I know that's many years before this, but oh, yeah, that's yeah, kind of what it. I'm picturing. I'm picturing greenery in the desert and running water and huge columned temples and, and towers and just amazing works. She's getting um, Greek and Roman philosophers, uh, scientists, and uh, people of learning from all around the empire are coming here because Rome... That's where Rome's, it's at. Yeah, Rome's a fucking mess, right? Nobody wants to go there. Everybody's getting mm -hmm. stabbed in the back every time they try around here hey look we're fostering there's it's rich they've got money they've got uh they're building stuff they can afford their that level of wealth in the ancient world where you can like afford to just pay people to be smart professionally in mm -hmm. public you know yeah <laughs> like, yep. that that that's uh kind of a cool thing um and uh yeah, so she even gets her image on a coin. And it's one of the only known instances of a historical woman ruler appearing on coinage. Except no substitutes. Yes. So one thing that she does that's very astute is that she's positioning herself as an alternative to Rome. So when we said she claimed descent from Cleopatra and Dido of Carthage, um, I mean, she claims that she's Arab, Syrian, Roman, Greek. She even in some sources speculate that she claimed at some point she was Jewish. Um, she is just 
not Roman. And Rome is weak right now. Rome is having this crisis and the fringe uh, areas on the outsides of the empire are starting to feel like maybe that, uh, that, that those Roman fingers are not quite so tight around their throats. And this is an alternative, which is pretty astute. In 270 CE, Zenobia has, has positioned herself with enough power that she just declares she's the queen of the East. Rome is, is a disaster. Uh, I'm, I'm the boss now. I'm the empress. This is when she starts minting that coinage. Um, then she marches on the Roman garrisons in the area. She attacks a Roman legion at Bostra, defeats them, and drives them mm. out. She starts moving south. She sends her armies through Arabia, Judea, Syria, and she sets her sights on Egypt, and she invades it in 270. There are some accounts of her traveling with the army and riding on horseback. Uh, there's a lot. She's portrayed in very different ways, according to the sources. They're all a mess. They're going to continue to be a mess, and we'll get into it a little bit more in yes. the future. But uh, yes. the Palmyrian army at this time is a Middle Eastern army, uh, Persian style. It's light infantry, spearmen, and uh, horse archers, uh, very talented archers on foot and on horse. And then the kind of the hammer of this army is these heavy cataphracts, these heavy, heavily armed cavalry mm -hmm. forces. And they are moving through Egypt. And, you know, Zenobia declares that uh, Alexandria is actually her ancestral home because she is descended from Cleopatra. And so they attack. And the Roman legate, uh, his name is Probius, he's the commander in North Africa. He attacks her and he is smashed. The legion is crushed. Um, the Palmyrians defeat them. And in 271, they take Alexandria. Uh, she takes a page from the Kandake's book and beheads the, uh, not the statue of Augustus, but the Roman governor of Egypt. <laughs> I don't so know what happened to the actual Roman governor, the actual dude, yeah. Of the Roman governor of okay. <laughs> Sucks for him. Yeah, I don't know what happened to that head, but it probably was buried under a temple somewhere, I'd imagine. I, I'm not <laughs> expecting to find that one at the British Museum. <laughs> Probably not. Although it, there are several body parts of humans on display in the British Museum, so it's not impossible. That is true. That is true. That is true. Uh, and while she's doing that, she also manages to send a second army north to Turkey and take um, uh, defeat the Turks. She takes Anatolia. Uh, the, she takes Ankara, which is the current capital of Turkey. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, in 271, she marches her armies into Alexandria and reclaims uh, what she said was her ancestral home. Yes. Yes. So either she reclaims it or she claims it for the first time. And I also want to say, to be fair to Zenobia, yes, she claimed descent from Cleopatra and maybe we're skeptical about that being literally true, but it was also kind of a thing in the ancient world to associate yourself with some famous, quote, ancestor or even a god or goddess back in your ancestry. And did people take that literally? Maybe some people did, maybe some people didn't. But uh, Zenobia is by no means the only person to have claimed some sort of descent from someone cool. Yeah. It's not that weird to assume. And we don't know that she was from Palmyra originally. We don't know very much mm -hmm. about you know, baby Zenobia. So we couldn't even say what part of the world definitively she was born in. So it's not easy. It's it's not a zero percent possibility that she is yeah, or was yeah. related in some way, even very indirectly to Cleopatra. Yeah, we can't prove her claim, but neither can we really disprove her claim. So let's just roll with it. Yeah. Spiritually, she was certainly the descendant of Cleopatra. She took Alexandria and, you know, what's that, uh, what's the thing, like, possession is nine-tenths of the law or whatever? <laughs> like, she's yeah. she's Cleopatra yeah. now. She actually has a much bigger empire than Cleopatra mm -hmm. ever had. So she's ruling a land that stretches from Ankara down to Alexandria and, and out east through into Persia and, and uh, Damascus. So that's a pretty impressive empire, no matter how you slice it. And Zenobia yeah. is the the sole and undisputed ruler of this area. So in 272, uh, the crisis of the third century kind of ends with a guy named Aurelian. Aurelian is a Roman emperor. He's a very badass guy. He started as a foot soldier, and then he went to a general, and then he went to an emperor. Uh, and he is consolidating power in Rome, and Rome is on the way back up. 
And first thing he's got to do is uh, get Zenobia out of Egypt because Rome needs that food. They need that that money that the Egyptian provinces produce for Rome. You can't leave. You can't leave that uh, that thread hanging. So he goes after Zenobia. He gets uh, several legions. He puts them all on boats. Um, and his legionaries that he brings with him are the best ones, the guys who have been fighting the Goths and the Gauls. And he heads them out. All the way the... over on the other side of the Mediterranean. Sure, but but experienced battle-hardened oh, yeah, veterans. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah they're, they're going into the desert, which is out of their comfort zone. But um, they, they can handle it. Right? Yeah. And yeah, they can handle it. They're they're pretty solid. So they start attacking. Um, they do eventually retake Egypt. When this army lands, it's a big, powerful army. Uh, Zenobia has kind of moved her big, powerful army back towards her capital. When the Romans show up with this army, the Egyptians are like, no, you, yeah, you guys are back in charge. It's fine. We, we missed you. We were actually on your side the whole time anyway. And mm -hmm. <laughs> he retakes yep. Egypt with very little conflict. Uh, then he starts moving for um, Palmyra because he's got to get Zenobia out of the picture. Zenobia does uh, an interesting thing. They're marching through the desert. And like you said, these are veterans of fighting in France and Germany. And um, she starts harassing them with horse archers and horsemen and stringing them out through the desert. She'll attack them and she'll retreat. And she'll do, this has been a kind of time-honored tactic of fighting of Middle Eastern armies uh, throughout antiquity. And it will continue to be effective. This is the sort of thing that Saladin used to defeat Richard the Lionheart in the Third Crusade. Um, mm -hmm. Attack the baggage trains, attack this. Never give them a real battle because you really don't want to put your guys up against theirs in uh, in melee. You want to shoot some arrows at them, harass them, drag them out, drag them out, drag them out. Mm -hmm. Let them kind of attrit a little bit. Um, they, they're successful for a while. It, it doesn't last, however. Um as Aurelian and the Romans are moving forward, they're gaining more and more support and they've got a big army and things start to crumble for Zenobia. She's losing support here and there. Uh, different provinces uh, on the fringe of her empire are now declaring themselves for Rome. Uh, she's hoping for reinforcements. They're not coming because they don't really want to risk. They kind of see which way the wind is blowing and they don't want to risk mm -hmm. pissing off Rome any further. After a, a little bit of a campaign, Aurelian reaches the walls of Palmyra. Um, which is heavily fortified. Uh, archers, siege weapons, they're throwing firebombs, they're throwing uh, burning oil, and um, Aurelian has her surrounded, and uh, there's a siege begins of the capital. And then what happens? There's a great quote I like to talk about because people were mm -hmm. were kind of hassling Aurelian because it was taking him a little too long to to win this um, win this battle and and the fact that he was he was fighting a woman like they didn't like that or whatever oh, no. and so Girl he has cooties. a yeah he has a, a quote where he said the the Roman people speak with contempt of the war which I am now waging against a woman they are ignorant of both the character and the power of Zenobia. It is impossible to enumerate her warlike preparations of stones, of arrows, and of every species of missile weapons. Every part of the walls is provided with two or three ballista, and artificial fires are thrown from her military engines. Um, and that's a quote from the emperor himself talking about trying to take Palmyra. And this is Palmyra, where we've had all of this cultural capital, all of this political capital, all of this capital capital, and Zenobia's building program and mm -hmm. resources that she's amassed. And yeah. this is what's facing Aurelian yeah. when he shows up. Yeah, yeah, she gives him a fight, but she needs help, right? She's surrounded and she yeah. needs, uh, yeah. you know, the Romans are, are losing guys every day, but it's not, it's not enough. She needs allies. She needs people to come to her aid. She's hoping for some help from the Egyptians and she gets word that it's not coming. And, you know, she could fight this to the end and watch all of those things she built be destroyed around her and burn around her. Um, instead, she decides she doesn't want to watch all of this stuff get get blown up and destroyed. So she's well, we don't really know what happens here, except that mm -hmm. the story is that she decides to personally head out. She's going to try to go to Egypt. She gets on a horse, uh, which we know she's a skill rider, and she gets out and she tries to ride, th break through the siege to get to her allies to personally appeal to them to come to help. And, Pat, we don't really know what happened. We've alluded to before that everything's a mess when we try to research mm -hmm. her. Yeah, we've got... 
a few different sources and they each give different accounts of what happens next. She is captured by the Romans and this part our sources seem to agree on. She was captured by the Romans. And then what happens? Well, we've talked before about being hauled off and dragged down the streets of Rome in a triumph in chains. Uh, presumably, I mean, that would be my guess. If if she had been captured, she would have been publicly displayed as a war trophy. That's what the Romans would have wanted to do to her. And Zenobia knows this. And some sources say that she was maybe inspired by the example of Cleopatra and wishing to preserve her own dignity and the dignity of her people in unfavorable circumstances, committed suicide. Within that, well, did she starve herself to death? Did she somehow have a poison ring that she could use? Because if you're a queen, maybe you have a poison ring for using to poison self or others. Um, there's another story that says that she did not actually kill herself and continued to live and was given a country villa somewhere in Roman territory and married off to a Roman senator or something like that. I don't know. Or like maybe even that could be a story that would be fostered by the Romans to be like, no, she's fine. She's just living on a farm somewhere, a little villa, a little mountain view, mm -hmm. looking at a lake. She's fine. You guys are all Romans now. Just pay your taxes. She's fine. Nothing had nothing bad happened. She totally didn't stab herself in the neck with a poison ring and kill herself. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. we don't know what happened to her. We do know what happened to Palmyra. Uh, Aurelian mm -hmm. takes the town. And he loots some riches. He sets up his own governor, but he doesn't sack the city. He doesn't massacre the population. He doesn't punish them. Um, he enters the city. He, you know, puts up his banners and his flags. You guys are all Romans now. Here's the address for you to mail your taxes. Here's when they're due. Uh, I'm getting mm -hmm. out of here. And he left. Mm -hmm. And he left the city undamaged and the people unharmed. And as soon as he was about 100 miles away, they revolted against him again. He turned around, came back, burned the place to the ground, killed a bunch of people, uh, destroyed some of the structures that were there, um, and then went back to Rome. And that was kind of the end of Palmyra for a while. Um, there's kind of a, I want to say a kind of a, tra without wanting, without making this kind of a bummer, there's kind of a tragic epilogue to Palmyra, which is that a lot of these structures survived, right? I mean, the town was kind of beat up by the Romans. And but a lot of these structures and things that were built by Zenobia survived. Um, and there was kind of a big problem in 2017 when uh, ISIS came through. The Islamic State mm -hmm. uh, blew up a lot of this stuff that she had built because it's, you know, wasn't, wasn't, I don't know, religious enough for them or whatever their reasons were for destroying ancient history uh, that I yeah, yeah. Uh, wholeheartedly disagree with. Um, so they blew a lot of this stuff up, which is really unfortunate, although there is a lot of um, uh, traction right now on movements trying to restore and rebuild and um, kind of fix what's what can be fixed, which uh, is is cool and and people who are doing that are doing very good work. So um, hopefully there will be yes, a, a yeah. happier ending than that. But mm -hmm. um, but yeah, yeah, for the monuments and for the people of yeah. Sega. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah. so we can really hope for that. Um, but yeah, those those are yeah. our stories for today. We talked about a now we've talked about a, a, a European woman mm -hmm. queen who resisted Rome and uh, one from Africa and one from Asia and um, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, um, that's okay. our show for today, and uh, we really hope you guys liked it. We really appreciate you listening to the show. We hope that you will uh, continue to follow us and tell everybody about it. And uh, uh, we really rely on you guys' support and. Um, and, and listenership. So we really appreciate it. Thanks so much. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Stay badass. Badass of the Week is an iHeartRadio podcast produced by High Five Content. Executive producers are Andrew Jacobs, me, Pat Larish, and my co-host, Ben Thompson. Writing is by me and Ben. Story editing is by Ian Jacobs, Brandon Fibbs, Mixing and music and sound design is by Jude Brewer. Special thanks to Noel Brown at iHeart. Badass of the Week is based on the website badassoftheweek.com, where you can read all sorts of stories about other badasses. 
If you want to reach out with questions, ideas, you can email us at badasspodcast at badassoftheweek.com. If you like the podcast, subscribe, follow, listen, and tell your friends and your enemies if you want, as we'll be back next week with another one. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Are the old world picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences with fewer people and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited time offers today at avalonwaterways.com. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.